Hi, and welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. This is Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and I would love for you to leave me a review of this podcast and also to share and like it and share it with your friends, see what they think and let me know. I would love to shout you out on social media. And also, I would love for you to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN, as well as TikTok. I also have started a YouTube channel at Dr. Sadaf Intimacy Coach. I'd love for you to follow me on all of those channels. And most importantly, I'd love for you to become a patient. I am now accepting telehealth patients for sexual health as well as menopause health in New York and Michigan. So if you are a woman that is looking for a doctor that understands you and can actually take the time to listen to all of your concerns, reach out to me. Reach out at drsadaf at drsadaf.com. And I would love to see you as a patient. And now for the episode. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and this episode is everything you need to know about intimacy and how infertility affects it and the different ways that we can create intimacy in uh, patients that may be experiencing infertility. But before we get into it, the first thing I want to make very clear is that I am not giving any type of medical advice. So if you are having any issues with conceiving or are looking for help, please speak with your healthcare provider. And if you have any questions about your religion, please speak with your friendly neighborhood religious leader. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that talks about sex. So I am super excited to have on with me today, Dr. Erica Bove. Dr. Erica Bove is a board certified reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist, as well as an OBGYN and also a relationship coach. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bove. And if you could please introduce yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, so my name is Dr. Erica Bove. And uh, like Dr. Lodi said, I am a reproductive endocrinologist. I specialize in infertility and I work in a faculty practice. And then I also am the head coach for Dr. Kavitha Sun's Emotional Mastery program. And so we have the Heal Your Relationships program and then we have a membership as well. And so I really derive a lot of joy from that role. And in my free time, I'm a mother of two boys who are eight and 10. And so they're the little loves of my life. And I'm a practicing Roman Catholic actually as well. So, um, but yeah, it's, I'm super excited to be here. Infertility is a passion of mine. I see day in and day out what it can do to people's sexual health and their sex lives. And so I am very much uh, passionate about helping people come back to where they can enjoy themselves again. That's awesome. So there's so much there that I just want to just dive right into. So tell us about this course that you talk about this. I know you talked about the emotional mastery and the relationship mastery. So maybe we could talk a little bit about both of them. Absolutely. So before I was Kavitha's head coach, I was her client and I found myself as a divorced woman and I had just had another failed relationship. And I thought to myself, 
what is me? <laughs> what am I bringing from relationship to relationship that if I did some healing, I might be able to have some better outcomes? And so I dug deep and I found Kavitha's work online. I stumbled upon some of her free content and I just knew in my soul that I had to work with her. I just was like, I have to work with this woman. She is going to be very, very integral to my healing. And so I signed up for her Heal Your Relationships course a few years ago. And, uh, you know, it's basically, it's it's evolved over time. We're on our fourth, fourth iteration, HYR 4.0. When I did it, it was 1.0. So it's a little different than it was uh, back then. Uh, but basically what it does is we, in eight weeks, we go back to the basics of who are we, what do we feel on a daily basis, what do we desire, and how can we not just heal our relationships outwardly, but how can we heal ourselves so that we literally heal from the inside out. So we do some past work, as you know, that coaching is not as much in-depth past therapy, psychoanalysis as it is. We really address the past if it's affecting our present. And then we examine our thoughts and our feelings as they pertain to our current life situations to figure out how we want to show up. And then what do we need to think and feel to be able to show up in those ways? And so we do delve a little bit into the past, but it's mostly present focused and very action oriented focused. And we do this in community. So it's a small group setting. Uh, people in their HYR cohorts keep in touch, meet up in person, have accountability partners. We still, I still keep in touch with mine from many years ago. And every week we have a different topic. So in the beginning, it's how do we feel our feelings? That sounds very basic, but unless we can feel, truly feel the full spectrum of all of our human emotions, then we will not be able to heal because when we approach a situation that maybe creates shame or reminds us of fear or maybe intense anger, sometimes that can be very frightening, we either react or ruminate or resist that emotion. And so the building blocks of our HYR course in the beginning is how can we sit with every single one of our emotions as they come to us and be fully present and just say, an emotion is an energy, it's just energy in motion, that's all it is. And if we don't do one of those three things I just mentioned, it's just gonna pass, right? So these emotions have so much power over us because of what we make them mean. And then if we can learn to be with them, then we can start to understand what are our feelings, what are our needs, how do we use our values as a filter for our decisions in our life presently? And then how can we go to those people in our lives who we really care about, right? Our innermost circle when we want to share ourselves, be vulnerable, intimate, and grow collectively. I love that. I love how you describe emotions as energy in motion. That's yeah. That's amazing, right? Yeah. That, yeah. that really takes away the power of those negative emotions and feelings that we feel, right? Like yeah. so sometimes we feel like when we get really angry, we just lose it. I know sometimes that happens to me, you know, when I'm with my kids or whatever, you know, even with my husband sometimes, even though I don't yeah. like it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, when you um describe it like that you're really taking away its power and so totally. that can sit with that emotion and so and those difficult emotions are really hard right like when you're angry when you're 
maybe jealous or when you're upset to just sit with that emotion so that it can pass through you. That's right. Really difficult. That's right. And there's a couple other things I want to say about that. Yeah. So we view emotions as data, mm. like thoughts and feelings. They help us. The weather comes and goes. And so if I'm super angry about something, I'm not going to get lost in the analysis paralysis, but that emotion has something to tell me. It's mm. coming to me for a certain reason. And so we, we all love data, right? And so if we can get a little bit of separation from that emotion and actually say, a part of me feels angry, a part of me feels frustrated, then we're not so fused to that emotion, but mm. we can get some space from it, mm. right? So we always say like, if I have my hand to my face, I might not even be able to see that there's a hand on my face because we're fused. But then if I take my hand just a little bit, oh, there are my fingers, there's my hair tie, there's my ring, you know, I can start to describe it a little bit. And so that's one of the tenets of what we do is that cognitive diffusion where we don't say, oh, I'm so angry, because that feels like it overtakes us. We say, you know, a part of me feels angry right now. And even that space and that awareness can have so much power. I love it. I love um, naming the feelings because then yeah. name them, right? Yeah. When we can name them, then we can, you know, come up with a solution. And I, I, I was listening to a podcast one time and they were talking about being very granular with your feelings. And I was like, what the heck are they talking about? And then they were saying like, you know, if you say that you're stressed, it's such a vague term, but like saying like, you know, I'm really upset at, I don't know, X, Y, or Z, whatever, then you can come up with a solution instead of saying that I'm stressed because stress right. is very hard to come up with a solution for. Yeah. And uh, we actually use the feelings wheel in our work. Yes. So have, have you ever seen that before? Oh my gosh. Hold on. Hold on. Ah, you have it. Is yours color coded? I hope so. Yes. Look. Oh my goodness. I so love it. Right. So yes. this is, this is the thing. So we talk about how our mind is the school yes. bus, right. And how we want to be the driver. Oh, I love your, I love your feelings wheel. It's so beautiful. Um, so, and you know, I've realized that sometimes when I name a certain emotion, that's kind of more in the center and more kind of the primary that actually might be three different passengers. So if I say a part of me is feeling angry and I think that anger is a passenger, if I actually parse it out and get more specific and granular, part of me might feel sad. Part of me might feel overwhelmed. Part of me might feel disappointed, frustrated. That might be three or four passengers in a row. And then if I can understand what each of those has to teach me, then I can start to, because anger is protective. Anger is never the driver. There's always something behind the anger, right? So that's something I've learned is that one, sometimes when I think of, I have like one big emotion, it's actually a few different things. And especially anger is very protective. The other thing that I learned from Kavitha is that whenever an emotion has the, the word ED, like I'm disappointed, I am um, rejected, like the ED emotions, those ones are usually, you can usually kind of go one more layer beyond that because that usually involves another person. Mm. And we tend to associate those a little bit more with blame. But if, if we can then say, I feel um, scared, right? That, that is a little more vulnerable, but I think that there is more power in, in owning that for what it is. I love it. There's so much there and there's so much information and good stuff that you're talking about. So, so say when somebody, you know, feels super angry or upset mm -hmm. and things like that, how can they move past that? I, oh, you know, yes. 
talking. So it, you know, there's the resilient zone, right? We have a resilient zone. Sometimes our resilient zone is very narrow. And what feeling our feelings about is about expanding that resilient zone. So it's much more broad. Mm. And so because an emotion is just energy in motion, what we do is we feel the emotion in our body. So for me, I mean, I always joke, I would clean toilets before I would sit with my emotions. I would, I would do my to-do list. I busy myself. I avoid, I, before this work and even during, it took me a very long time before I could actually be brave enough uh, and courageous enough to sit with my feelings. Cause I, I didn't know what was going to come. Right. I, I was very afraid. So now, you know, say I, I, part of me starts to feel angry. I say, I start to breathe into the emotion. And then I start to feel where it is in my body. This mm. is a very embodied experience. And so I might say, oh, you know, I feel it right under my right rib cage and it's hot. It actually feels kind of like a poker. Does it have a color? Does it have a warmth? I mean, a poker is very hot. What's its texture? Sometimes my emotions are like black, tarry, sticky, but this, this anger today, it feels like a hot poker under my right rib. Mm. Okay. All right. I'm going to breathe into it. And as I breathe into it, I get very curious and I see if it starts to change, right? This is staying in my body. It's not in my mind. It's saying, does it feel a little less hot, a little bit less painful as I breathe? Is it starting to diffuse under my whole right rib cage? I think so. So you see, as I breathe in, the emotion starts to move through my body, but I have to really describe it in such granular detail because it is, it is located in my body and it will move through, through me if I allow it to do that. Right? That's so it's it's interesting, and and one of the one of the comments that we often get is like, I just don't feel anything. I don't even know where to begin with this because it's such a foreign skill. But you know, even that, just noticing, I feel emptiness. I'm not sure I feel it anywhere. I'm having a hard time connecting. Even just making that acknowledgement is very powerful. And even if it's the tiniest bit of sensation, even if it's just like you know, I think I feel a little bit of tingling somewhere. Then we go with that because that then is the gateway into the rest, which is, which is much deeper and much more profound. So it's this, that, yeah. so many of us are, are not used to living in our bodies. We live in our minds. We have these very cerebral jobs, but that feeling the feelings is so very important. And it's, it's the happy emotions too. Sometimes people say, is it just the quote unquote negative emotions that we're talking about? You know, sometimes we're afraid to feel the, the, the joy and the happiness because those might overcome us too. So it's about the full range of human experience, which we actually experience in our bodies. I love it. So tell me a little bit about your relational, um, intimacy or your, what is it? Relational course? Yeah. 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 So the first four weeks of the heal your relationships course is really about focusing on ourselves and our emotional mastery within yeah. ourselves. Yeah. And sometimes people rush in like week two or week three to say, Oh, but my husband, you know, we're stonewalling and I don't know how to get over that. We always say, just trust the process, stay in the moment because we really need to develop that resilience zone of feeling the feelings. Yeah. And we have um, this whole process where we help people identify their unanswerable question. Mm. And the unanswerable question is unanswerable because nobody else can answer it for us. 
Mm. right? We always look to somebody else, mm -hmm. but it exists because that is the theme that comes up in all of our arguments and all of our frustrations, that there's this core wound that we have that connects all the dots. And so some examples of the unanswerable question are, you know, will I ever be good enough? Will I ever be somebody's top priority? My personal unanswerable question is, how can I balance the need both for human connection and also authentic self-expression? So for me, how that shows itself you know, in my practical, in my personal life is when I start to feel too close to somebody, I start to feel like I'm going to be suffocated. And then I violently start to carve out time in the opposite direction, but in a way that's not very controlled. It's almost like a reactionary, like, oh my gosh, I need more time. I need more yoga. I need more this. I mean, need more of that. And Kavitha very early on said, you know, Erica, more yoga is not going to solve your problem. Like yeah. more nights away from your partner is not going to solve your problem. You need to learn how to coexist with this tension. And so there are ways, you know, filling the well, we talked about that a few minutes ago uh, during our other conversation and really tending to that, I've realized that if I connect with myself through running, journaling, those sorts of things, then I can share that self with another person. So I thought the two were always in tension with each other, but they actually can coexist quite nicely. But it took me a lot of internal work with Kavitha to really understand how I, because that would show up in every relationship of mine, right? With my mother, with my partner, with my friends, um, that, that unanswerable. So that's what we do is we help people identify what is their unanswerable question, because then we start to think about the relational mastery of the, the, the really acute, painful things that people come to us hoping to heal. When people say, oh, my unanswerable question is, will I ever feel safe or secure? Or will I ever be good enough? Those sorts of things then translate into what they're looking for from their partner if that makes sense. And people don't necessarily have to heal their romantic relationships with us. Many people come, you know, for their mother or their sister or best friend, you know, but, but oftentimes I'd say the majority of the time it is with a romantic partner. And so just that awareness is super helpful. So feelings, check-ins, unanswerable question. And, and then we start to go into, you know, well, then what are my values and how do my values show up when I start to think about my feelings, my needs, and what I will come to my partner with in terms of you know, requests, right? Because usually a balance needs to shift somewhere and we call it the 1% shifts, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. So the second four weeks of the Heal Your Relationships course is when we really start to delve into values. We really, we go through the whole like identity because everyone's, you know, your values may be different than my values. And, and those are the filter through which we make decisions. And how, and maybe my values are slightly different from my partner's values, and we're trying to navigate a certain decision. All those things come into play as we do that. And then we start to talk a little bit more about boundaries, because uh, I think that loving, flexible boundaries are very, very important. Right. And then we talk about communication as well. So we help people be able to have uncomfortable conversations in the service of growth, whatever that means for them. Hmm. Love all that. So tell me a little bit about how you've noted um, in a patient that's trying to conceive how their intimacy, how their oh, relationship yeah. um, changes with that, awesome. right? Such a great question. And I will say, typically, if we're talking about a heterosexual couple, you know, where they've been trying for a certain amount of time, invariably, it affects their intimate life because 
we think about one of the purposes of sex is for procreation. And so, yes, it's much broader than that. But if the procreative part is not working, the tension tends to focus there. And then people start to feel broken. They start to feel isolated. And sex can feel like a chore. You know, it's like, oh, my wife is ovulating. You know, we have to get together right now. And I will tell you, at least 40, 40% of my male uh, counterparts have some sort of erectile dysfunction because it is so incredibly stressful at that moment when they need to perform. And 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 many of my clients, my patients, you know, very sadly feel per, like personal failures. And so what I do is I always meet people where they're at. I think body language is very important. Many couples are very supportive and attuned to each other. Um, a lot of times this has become a wedge and people are actually sitting in different directions, looking in different directions. So I always assess the situation and figure out where people are at. And I try to say, you know, let me worry about the fertility part. I want you guys to focus on yourselves and your relationship. So I can take that burden off of you while we sort this out. And then the rest that, you know, and then, you know, let's see what we can do to help you enjoy being together to have a date night, you know, not to be hyper aware of when your wife is ovulating, those sorts of things, so that we can bring back the passion and the spontaneity. Because my my patients, my clients, they feel like they're living according to a clock and they have to live their life in two week intervals. And even, you know, if people enjoy a glass of wine, they're like, can I even have a glass of wine if I might be pregnant, right? And so it's people feel so controlled and trapped by these rigorous schedules. And I try to get away from that. Yeah, no, I can absolutely see how, you know, the intimacy, the emotional intimacy, all of that would be affected yeah. when you're trying to conceive. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, I wonder how often you see this, but, you know, resentment build up, maybe oh, anger, yeah. you know, lots of blame, lots of blame. Like we do the evaluation, right? There's certain tests that we, we don't do the same evaluation for every single person. There is a tailored approach, but there's certain boxes you want to check to make sure that the sperm are okay. You want to make sure the fallopian tubes are open. You want to make sure uh, the female patient's ovulating. There are certain things that are very useful to know. And so say it's like purely male factor infertility. That's really, really hard for a man to accept that. To Even, even providing a sperm sample in the first place is somewhat of an awkward um, yes. you know, exercise. And to even admit that there might be a problem with a the sperm, there's something very primal, I think, in terms of this sense of manhood and sense of responsibility that even putting a light to the situation can be very, very complex yeah. and difficult, right? So then we get the information, we, we come to the table with all the tests and it, you know, a lot of couples will go to, well, no, it's your fault. Well, no, it's your fault. It's the fact that you, know, you have endometriosis. It's the fact that this, and what I try to say is, listen, one in eight couples have infertility. This is a disease. This is nobody's fault. This is not about pointing the finger about where things, it's about me and you understanding where things are not connecting so that we can intervene at that specific place to help bring about your goal of building your family. So I try again to take one step back and say, this is not about blame. This is not about any sort of, per let's take the personal stuff out of it let's focus on the bigger picture. And thankfully we do have technology that allows us to help most people achieve their dreams. But it's complicated because I think it, it becomes so painful. And when you know, infertility in and of itself is such a stress that this is the moment when couples need each other the most in terms of leading on each other. But if there is that wedge already because of this, 
then it becomes hard in those situations for people to have that intimacy, to have that sharing and to navigate the problem together. If that makes sense. Yeah. I'm wondering, you know, how much of your coaching you're using when you see these? Oh, that's a great question because I practiced for many years before I became a coach, a certified coach. I will say I use coaching the most when people are trying to make critical decisions and they have some sort of limiting belief that is preventing them from crossing a bridge, so to speak. So we have certain treatments that we offer to, to people, to patients. And for many reasons, sometimes people say, they come to me and they say, well, I would consider everything on the table, but not IVF. Hmm. Right. And, and I am not the one to say that IVF is for everybody who doesn't get pregnant with lesser means. That's not, you know, people have various reasons why they might not even want to consider IVF, but I get very curious and I say, tell me more about what IVF means to you. A lot of times people say, well, it's just not natural. So then I say, okay, so let's, let's explore more about what that means. And so sometimes when people then turn the light on, why? Maybe it's they're afraid that their mother is going to judge them. Maybe they come from a culture where they think, you know, it maybe is not acceptable to do that. And so really understanding where people are at and what their thoughts and their feelings are about that helps people in those moments of decision-making. And oftentimes many people, you know, once they understand their thoughts and their feelings, they might stay where they are and say, well, let's see what happens. And that's completely acceptable my role is if those thoughts and feelings are hidden and by understanding them, there might be more wisdom, more decision-making power. I believe knowledge is power. And so that's, that's where I see my role. Um, Another place I see it is when people are considering, um, you know, donor gametes, which I know is, can be very controversial and say somebody has no sperm, say somebody has uh, eggs that are no longer good because of age the decision at that point becomes, do we consider adoption? Do we think about a, a childless life? Do we think about donor egg and donor sperm? Those are very complicated conversations. And I think coaching can ver- be very helpful both to understand where each person is with their thoughts and their feelings and to explore that and to help people get on the same page with whatever decision they're going to make. Right. No, I, I, I mean, gosh, I can only imagine, you know, I used to, I loved infertility when I did it as a student rotating and I actually spent like two months doing it. And after the second month, I was so worn out. I was like, oh yeah. You know, I, I totally understand. I think thankfully, you know, we have time to see patients. And I think though, I mean, for me going, I I went to med school to be a psychiatrist, right. And then I fell in love with OBGYN and then I decided to do infertility. So there is a lot of psychology, you know, and, and that sort of understanding of the human spirit that goes into my work as a fertility specialist. Um, I think one of the most interesting questions to ask my patients, my female patients is what does motherhood mean to you? Right. Mm -hmm. Because this is all in pursuit of becoming a mother from the female patient's perspective. And so that can mean different things to different people. But I think that that is such a complex question from a societal perspective, from a cultural perspective, and it means very different things to different people. And so understanding what that means for the individual, I think is very, very crucial for then helping people make these very sometimes complex decisions. Yeah, right. And trying to figure out what is it that they really want, right? Are they looking for societal acceptance? Are they, you know, wondering what their life will look like as they age and they want yeah. to of them? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I'm seeing more and more women who have really focused on their careers and then they emerge in their late thirties, early forties, sometimes mid forties. And they say, I kind of forgot about this motherhood thing. Where do I go from here? And I see that all the time. And so that's really where I'm sort of seeing this person, but I'm not sure if they're, you know, the person I want to have children with, but I'm getting older. So this is a very common, common situation. And I love helping people, even though it's a very, very complicated uh, topic to approach because that's where people's values come into play the most is how do I then go about making these decisions that, you know, do I free some eggs and then sort out the partner situation? Do I put the, do I table this and reevaluate in one to two years? Everybody has a unique situation. Yeah. And so that's where I love helping my patients the most. Yeah, I'm sure you probably delve into a lot of different complicated situations and thoughts and feelings. And gosh, there's so much charged feelings around fertility, infertility, and yeah. just, you know, what it means to each person. I'm sure it's so complicated. You know, do you ever get uh, patients who think that maybe it's just not meant to be for them and yeah. that maybe they wouldn't be good parents anyways? You know, yeah. a lot of those type of negative thoughts, do you get those for patients that are trying to conceive? Or, or maybe yeah. even somebody that thinks that it's a punishment from God that they're not able to get always. Pregnant. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say always, I say so often, so often it's like, well, maybe this is God's will for my life. Yeah. Maybe, you know, God gives us what we can handle. And I hear that from people of all different cultures and, you know, it's such an interesting question or, you know, if, if, um, you know, maybe this is God's way of telling me that I'm not meant to be a parent. And so I have a friend, a fertility specialist friend who did this TikTok on her knee injury. And she was like, well, all you really need is one good leg. I mean, maybe this is God's way of saying that you should, you know, walk around on crutches for the rest of your life, you know? So, and, and I'm not saying that fertility treatments for everybody. What I'm saying is I think that sometimes we think about infertility different than we think about other medical diseases. You know, if you have a surgical problem, the, the, the typical solution is to get surgery for that ailment and then the recovery process, and then we move forward. But I think there's a lot of judgment, a lot of shame, a lot of blame a lot of more existential questions as it pertains to bringing another human into the world. And so what I try to do is I try to you know, sort of take all of that away and say, let's look at this as a disease and let's look at this and let's look at what technology we have available to us and, you know, what do we need to do to, to help you in your situation and, and really reduce the stigma? Because I think it's People, oh, and some people have, have had an abortion in the past and they say, oh, this is God's way of saying, because my, this is my punishment is now that I'm, I'm not able to have, you know, my own children when I want them. And so people just carry all of this hurt and these deep, deep wounds. And so that's what I love. I, you know, we can sort of really share the data about what we know. And, um, but those, those, those existential questions, those are, that's where real healing happens, I think. That's amazing. I think that I'm sure your patients are so lucky to have you to be able to really, you know, understand their feelings and understand what they're going through because intimacy is really tough. I, I mean, well, infertility <laughs> rather. Yeah, it's tough. But yeah. Yeah. I remember with um, when I was uh, having my second one and I actually had a hard time conceiving and really hard time conceiving means like it took me longer than six months, you know, <laughs> starting to panic. And I was Feels like, like forever, doesn't it though? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I um, put myself on Clomid and, you know, but it was, 
it, even those few months, I was I really stressed out and I had a, had a miscarriage right before that. So sorry, yeah. It, yeah, so it was really like um, a tough time. So I can't even imagine patients that really, really want to have a baby yeah. um, going through it for years and years and you yeah. know, how, how taxing it must be on their relationships. I wonder, you know, do you see relationships that probably like break apart? Oh, I do. I do. And it's, it's very complicated. I mean, it depends on where people are at in the process and, uh, it gets, it gets very, very complicated. Um, you know, especially if there are say people have done IVF and there's embryos in storage and then what happens with those embryos and there's all sorts of questions that, and it's just so sad, you know, it's so sad because you wonder if they hadn't had infertility, if they would have stayed together, um, because it's so very stressful. So I just try to meet people where they're at. I listen. I think that listening is very empowering and helping people to listen to each other. And I I love the couples work aspect of it because I think it's, I'm always so fascinated. How do people even find each other in the first place? And how do people, how are they different? How are they similar? How do they support each other? I am constantly humbled by the support that, that couples can give to each other. It is just so very beautiful. And then sometimes I'm just completely heartbroken when I see how people are just missing each other. And despite therapy and all sorts of things that it just nothing seems to to work, or maybe one person really wants children and the other doesn't, and that becomes a dividing factor as well. So yes, I see people all over the map. And my goal is really to support people as best as I can. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I love that. And I I wish that more doctors would do that, you know, and I think a lot of times the limiting factor is time, right? Like that time. And I think that if you are fortunate enough to have your own practice, then you can schedule in that time for those patients that you think might need that extra time. But a lot of times when you are in a practice where it's every 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you just it's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I like to do is like, sometimes it's really hard to make these decisions. And so for my follow-ups, I might say like, we'll meet, we'll talk for 30 minutes, we'll get to a certain point. And and it's clear that a decision cannot be made in that time. So I say, let's meet in one to two weeks after you guys have had a chance to sit down, digest, process, and then let's talk again. And I find those follow-ups very, very fruitful Mm. because it's not even just how much time I have in one session but it's about continuing the relationship, continuing to understand yes. what people need to be able to make the best decision for them. And allowing them time and space to process the information that you've given them, right? Yeah. Because oftentimes people need to digest that and look at you know, what their options are, but also you know, what is it that they really want and what is it yeah. that they're looking for? Yeah. And what are they missing? So I think that- And finances, that- I mean, I, I can't yes. say this without yeah. talking about finances that, Many people don't have insurance coverage for this. So it means that they have to make some sort of sacrifice in some other aspect of their life in order to pursue yeah. this. And it, it's not even 100%, you know? So it's there's all these different things that uh, finances are a huge part of it too, because huge. I think people really do need to make these decisions with um, with that in mind as well. Absolutely. Infertility treatment is not cheap at all whatsoever. Mm-mm. So yeah, it's no. definitely cost prohibitive for a lot of individuals, absolutely. Yeah. But I will say, you know, in every practice I've been a part of, for the patients where it takes years for it to work, there is something that is so very sweet when it finally happens. And I have a patient recently, I just get chills thinking about it. I worked with her for three years after she had already been to other specialists. 
And we did this unconventional protocol that I never learned in training. And, you know, but you kind of use your brain and you use your intuition. I mean, we haven't even talked about that, the art of medicine. And when your intuition tells you to do something that maybe science would say, oh, that's, that's ridiculous. Like I remember I told her she had to wake up at three o'clock in the morning and she had to like do this injection at that time. And, and we, t- we went over the different you know pros and cons of everything. And wouldn't you believe after several embryo transfers, this one took, she oh. carried the term, she just delivered. And like <laughs> the day that she delivered, I mean, I found out from her personally, but like four people from my office were like, did you hear, did oh. you hear? Like <laughs> everyone celebrates the win. And it's just like, it's just, there's something so beautiful when, when people want it so badly and you know, they're going to be fantastic parents and they stay with it. There's something very rewarding about that, but you're right. It certainly can divide people. Um, and people, I mean, there's, there's data that people who struggle with infertility have comparable anxiety and depression rates to patients with cancer. So it, it is a real thing. And I think unless we address the mental health side of things, yeah. um, we can't, we can't make any progress because nothing happens if that's not, if that's not addressed. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So any few last minute pearls that you may want to tell our listeners and our viewers, you know, how to maintain that intimacy while they're struggling with infertility. Yeah. You could give three pearls to somebody. What would you say? That's a great question. So I would say to schedule date nights. I mean, that's your advice too, but I always say schedule date nights that have nothing to do with conception. Mm. So like intentionally choose a time when you know that there's no possibility of getting pregnant and dress up, you know, light a candle, have some mystery, have some adventure and just say, this is purely for pleasure. This is purely for fun. And I find that that's a really this this timed intercourse. I wish that we could just throw that out of the vocabulary of, of what we do. That's like one of my least favorite expressions. So when we kind of take the flip side of that sex just for pleasure and connection, I think that's that's one pearl. Um, a second pearl would be to re- just take the blame away. You know, I think so many times people say, well, it's your fault. Well, it's your fault. And then then that prevents that closeness and that intimacy because of that resentment that builds. And so just take the blame away. Understand that just like people have high blood p- pressure, you know, people have infertility and it's nobody's fault. And we do the best that we can. And then a third pearl, I think that sometimes life can get so narrow in terms of the focus just becomes infertility. And, you know, sometimes people put off travel, they put off getting a dog, they put off other aspects of their life because they're so hyper-focused on this. You know, I always say to my patients, like, you know, a cycle can wait. If you want to go to Iceland, go to Iceland and then, you know, explore that part of yourself and then come back and we'll, we'll do the fertility. We'll get everything set, but like, don't put off the things you want to put off in your life. You know, if you can do it financially because of this journey, because, because you never know, right. You never know what's going to happen. And so get the puppy, go on the trip, do things that are outside of infertility, because I think that broadens the experience of life and that the infertility is just one part of it, not the whole thing. Absolutely. Right. Experience your life as it is right now. That's right. Learning to enjoy. Yeah. Yes. And can I add a fourth? What? (laughs) So my fourth piece of advice is that people who want to become parents will become parents one way or another. And that's something that I think sometimes people lose sight of that and they say, well, if it doesn't happen 
in this time frame, in this way, with my strong plan A. I always talk about the strong plan A. Yeah. Oftentimes we have to completely let go of the strong plan A because, you know, those of us who believe in a higher power, sometimes there's another plan. And what we need to do, I think, is to say, okay, let's just trust that we're going to become parents, however that comes about. And that child who comes to us, we are going to be meant to be their parents, right? And so I think that if we can take three steps back and remember that the whole goal is becoming parents and building a family, it may not be exactly how I thought it would be when I started on this journey, but for people who keep that open mindset, it just, it just works out. It just works out because people will become parents. They'll become wonderful parents. And, and when that baby comes, however it comes, it's, it's like the, the story is part of it, but it, it becomes very much in the background. That's great. Awesome. Yeah. So what if somebody is listening and wants to work with you? How can they find you? Where, they, where can they go? Yes, absolutely. So we are, well, I practice clinically at the University of Vermont. So if somebody has a clinical, um, you know, clinically has an infertility problem and they want medical care and they're in that region, I have licenses, medical licenses in um, New York and Vermont. So you can come and find me there. And then also if, if somebody wants to um, work with us in our coaching facility and in our, in our, in our coaching world, I am Dr. Kavitha's head coach for her emotional mastery program. And so we are on Facebook. Um, we are on the website. So Dr. Kavitha Sun, Dr. Kavitha Sun.com. That's D-R-K-A-V-E-T-H-A-S-U-N.com. And so we love to help people live their best lives. You know, I, as a gynecologist, tend to take more of the, uh, the infertility wing and the sex and intimacy wing if people have those specific, um, you know, problems. But it's really much more uh, broad in terms of the emotional mastery, the relationship mastery, because we believe that the, the sex and the intimacy is, is, a, is a piece of a larger puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, that is awesome. And well, we are done here and it's been real and really intimate. And remember, this is not meant to be any type of medical advice. So if you're having any issues with intimacy or infertility or anything like that, please speak with your healthcare provider and or coach. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So thank you for listening to the podcast and make sure you leave us a review, share and like the podcast. And if you leave me a review, I'd love to shout you out on social media. So be sure that you share it with all your friends and thanks for listening. Thanks.